I can only say that our belief is that we are best when we do not allow ourselves to define ballet down to a small idea and that ballet for all of its negative or tenuous connotations out in the popular culture is actually a very big idea and um, the thing that grounds us is this aesthetic ideal and the the training that is the classical ballet training but the uses and the ways that we can employ that training are literally limitless the portland 50 podcast is brought to you by jaguar land rover portland one company two iconic brands jaguar land rover portland is a don rasmussen company the legendary portland institution serving our community since 1950. additional support for the portland 50 is provided by zupan's markets Our guest this week is Kevin Irving, the artistic director with Oregon Ballet Theater, which kicks off their 30th season in Portland this month. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kevin, learning about his entree into the dance world, which was different than most, as well as the history of the Oregon Ballet Theater. I mentioned it. It uh, came together 30 years ago, and they're kicking off their 30th season this month. And before I go on, I should point out that you can find out more about many of the things and performances that we talk about on the Oregon Ballet Theater website, obt.org. All right, so here it is, my conversation with Kevin Irving, Artistic Director with Oregon Ballet Theater. Thanks for making the time. I know this is a big week. We talked about this uh, off mic, but um, you're moving into the Keller right now. The company's moving into the Keller. That's right. We are, as we speak, setting up and getting everything ready for the opening of our 30th anniversary season, which starts Saturday night, October 5th. So explain this to me, because I've always been curious about this. The Oregon Ballet Theater, where is your normal base of operations? We operate a studio in South Waterfront, right next to the old spaghetti factory if you're a legacy portlander and you know where that is before anything else was there right and uh we also have a satellite school down in west lynn so those are your normal base of operations but when you when you put on actual productions yeah when we're performing we're either at the keller auditorium or at the newmark theater typically in the spring which is uh, we're pretty much right now in the kink studio sandwiched between those two locations exactly yeah um, when when you make that transition, do do all operations shift into the Keller and into the Newmark, or are you still home base is still out on uh, the waterfront? Well, you know our back office stays where it stays put. Yeah. We uh, you know we move all of the dancers, all the technicians, all of our scene shop and yeah. uh, costumes. It's a big production to go into the theater, right. especially with a show like this. Right, so big productions require big productions. Yeah, they require a lot of people to um, move things. You know, we've got sets flying in and, uh, you know, a lot of costumes. So uh, there's a lot of hands on deck that you don't see in the performance but are there behind the scenes. Now, Kevin, as the artistic director in you, you uh, six years, seven years you've been? Uh, I've been here six years. I've just started my seventh season. Okay. Um, let's talk about your background because I'm fascinated by this, and I'll explain why. Um, I, I come from a sports music background. I was in choir in high school. I played sports. Was captain of the football team. I'm just throwing that out there in case anybody cares. Um, but it wasn't until I had two daughters and a wife 
that are just heavy into dance. And so I've got a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old, and when they're not in school, they're at the the dance studio that we send them to awesome. for five, six, seven hours a day. On Saturdays, they're there for 10 hours plus. <laughs> and it's a whole new world for me, but uh-huh. it has truly opened up my eyes to the athleticism and the physical demands that are, I, I think it's unfortunate oftentimes people don't look at dancers the way they do at other athletes. Athletes, yeah. And they couldn't be so far wrong on it. It's, it's like, I, I, to a large degree, it, it, there's more athleticism going on, on on top of being artistic. It's like the perfect combination yeah, exactly. of the body. They've got to be just as athletic as, as a boxer yeah. or um, a tennis player, but... You know, there's no grunting in ballet and, you know, they have to make it look like it's effortless. But, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty intense. The training, the amount of dedication to physical discipline, you know, healthy eating, all the things that you expect of a professional athlete Mm -hmm. um, go on in the ballet world. It's just um, it's kept a little bit less visible. Right. And uh, just to answer your question a little bit, I'm the last person who thought that or ever imagined that I would be directing a ballet company. Um, Although I didn't grow up very athletic, I grew up in a family of jocks. Uh, I have six other brothers and sisters, and all of them were major into sports. I was the kind of lone outsider. I was like a musical theater geek Mm -hmm. and um, a a math geek, actually, in uh, high school. And I discovered dance super late, and what I discovered was jazz dance. I got my start. I'm from New York originally. Right. I got my start because I got a scholarship from Alvin Ailey, who is an African-American icon uh, and who has a school and a, a company. Actually, he passed away in the uh, late 80s. But um, I found myself in this incredible world that was really invigorating, and uh, that's when I really started studying dance uh, with some serious intent and uh, I had kind of like a backwards journey through the dance world because I started out in jazz then I went to a very 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 modern company mm-hmm. and I went to ballet when I was 24 okay. and I swear to God I never considered myself uh, capable of being in a ballet company until I was actually in a ballet company and then lo and behold a lot of uh, things were revealed to me and I've spent my life ever since I was 18 in the dance world and uh, I feel very very lucky to be here in Portland leading this incredible company especially as we're about to start our 30th anniversary season and I should point out for for maybe a listener that that is an office like I was before I had my daughters you you saying about you went about it in a strange way ballet is considered by a lot of people maybe most people within the dance community that's that's your base you start in ballet and then Go to those other things. Typically, Am I correct on that? It's it's more typical um, because the demands of ballet tend to be, um, and I don't want to um, impose any kind of judgment on this. It tends to be physically more demanding than a lot of other dance techniques. Um, for women, uh, the the use of the point shoe yeah. is um, uh, really demanding. For the men in ballet, you know, you've got the demand to to jump. Just the jumping in ballet. Um, is very different from a lot of other dance forms and you know therefore there's a lot more wear and tear on your body so typically dancers start out in in ballet and then as their body breaks down or as they begin to want to break free from the more uh, rigidly controlled type of movement that is classical ballet they tend to go out and go into other dance forms and I just did it backwards yeah 
What was that? Was uh, were you aware of what you were getting into, or, or maybe that was a good way to do it? Ease I was yourself blissfully into it. unaware, my yeah. friend. I, um, as I said, I never imagined myself being in a ballet company, much less leading a ballet company. But uh, it was just revealed to me over time that as I worked and as I, you know, devoted myself to it, that there was. Uh, more to be gained from doing it and I loved it mm -hmm. and then I found success so that kind of reinforced what I was doing and um, I was extremely fortunate all across um, my life and uh, my career to come into contact with really inspiring teachers who saw some kind of spark in me and and helped fan the flame into uh, becoming the artist that I eventually became and uh, then to over the course of my post performance career to work with really some of the most uh, well known and um, exciting people in both contemporary ballet and classical ballet. I spent about four years as a as a guest um, rehearsal director mm -hmm. at the Royal Danish Ballet, which is one of the oldest ballet companies in the world. Yeah, and you know, like a storied house and um, theater system that is really like the root of classical ballet. So I learned a lot from doing that. Um, as, as the For those that don't know what an artist, artistic director for a, a ballet company or a dance company, in, this, in your case, the Oregon Ballet Theater, what does an artistic director do? Well, I set the course of, of pretty much everything. I decide what is going to be performed when, who is going to perform and when, how we put all the pieces together. I need to hold together a team that encompasses not only our our fixed company of dancers and the support staff, all the production staff, um, but all of the guests that come in. Like when we do something like we're doing now, this program called OBT Roars, uh, we've had guests come in from as far away as Germany and, and also guests that are reconnecting with Oregon Ballet Theater who haven't been working with the company since its very first formation. So we have a, a number of people working with us who were there in 1990 for the very first production of OBT and who are now back helping us get this show on, the, on, on its feet. That would, that would be this would be a great point for us to talk about it. Um, so the Oregon Ballet Theater celebrating thirty, going into its thirtieth season. I guess the official anniversary would be next year. Well, no, it actually was formed in nineteen eighty nine. Okay, um, and um, this particular piece I'm referring to, Shahrazad, mm -hmm. was created in nineteen ninety. It was gotcha. the first piece. I don't know if you know the history of OBT, but it was two. Was it two companies coming together? There were two companies, and back yeah. in the eighties, they were really fierce rivals. Sure, and there was um, a bit of excitement about having. Uh, two competing ballet companies here right. in this relatively small town, especially in in the '80s, and then you know people just threw up their hands and said, "You guys, there's no way we can support two ballet companies. You have to come together." And so there was a kind of graft yeah. between the Ballet Oregon on one side and Pacific Ballet Theater on the other side that created Oregon Ballet Theater. Uh, uh, you weren't here at the, at the time, as we've established. No, I wasn't. But are there stories? Was was that was that coming together? That graft, as you called it, was it probably a little tenuous at the beginning? Uh, yeah, the, I think that there was a fair amount of tension in the beginning, as you know, you can understand. It was a bit of a shotgun wedding. Yeah, and um, there were definitely some uh, bumps along the road. But what is remarkable is that uh, there are so many people here in Portland that 
continued to support the company that have been there from the beginning, who have been supporters and uh, artistic voices like the original uh, founding artistic director, James Canfield, Mm -hmm. um, is still working with us. And there are people who were involved in the very beginning of the company when uh, even before we have a board member, actually, Keith Martin, who started Ballet Oregon, who was here when, you know, one of those two companies was competing for people's attention. Mm -hmm. And he's still part of what we do now. So as part of the uh, 30th anniversary season and program, you're kicking things off. You mentioned it with the uh, with the uh, uh, I don't explain to us what Roar is. Uh, so OBT Roars is um, the the title we've given to our opening production, and it's three different ballets on one program. What we sometimes call a mixed bill, but in this particular case, it's it's like um, opening up a treasure chest, and you've you've got you know a sparkling diamond, you've got an incredible pearl, and you've got this um, kind of case of lapis lazuli or something that is is just so. Um, distinct and and beautiful all in one program. I don't know if that was the best analogy, but um, uh, we have a work that was created by William Forsyth in 1989, I believe, kind of like right at the beginning of OBT. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a work that I think changed ballet forever and really, in my mind, was the start of the 21st century in ballet. It's called In the Middle, Somewhat Elevated. It's hyper-modern. Its music score is actually an electronic series of crashes and booms, and it's really a a vehicle to show exactly what you were talking about before, the incredible athleticism, mm-hmm. the competitiveness, and the, the daredevil aspect of being a ballet dancer in what is now the 21st century. We also have a work by George Balanchine, who is considered the um, genius on par with Picasso of the 20th century in one of his landmark pieces in collaboration with Igor Stravinsky, Mm -hmm. these two kind of icons of 20th century modernism and also sophistication. And it's a work to a score by Stravinsky called the Violin Concerto in D that the company's never performed live and it's a it's a piece of music that is not often heard in the concert hall because it's so devilishly hard right um and as a ballet it's it's a really cool ballet because it's two peerless artists working without the need to overextend themselves or prove anything it shows that great art can also be light and enjoyable and that doesn't have to be kind of heavy and didactic and then we're closing the program with um, this work I've referenced a couple times uh, called Scheherazade which was created uh, at the very beginning of the merging of the two companies it's to a score by Rimsky-Korsakov incredibly lush colorful vibrant um the the sets were done by um a local legend here in the art community hank pander and uh the costumes by were by rick owen and uh choreography by dennis spate who was the founding resident choreographer and associate director former artistic director of ballet oregon and at the end of the evening we go into this very colorful magical experience of the the choreography the music and the lighting the sets the costumes all kind of creating this mysterious magical experience that is unlike anything anyone's seen and it hasn't been performed here in portland since 1993 so this is this is going back to the early roots of the oregon ballet theater 
um, you as the artistic director, when did you start thinking about, oh, hey, our 30th anniversary is coming up. What are we going to do? Did, was the pressure on you to come up with something good? It absolutely was. Um, there's always pressure, you know, to find the right hook to bring people in and to also, in this case, find a way to honor the past without feeling like we were only looking backwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, ballet is a often misunderstood art form. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of either negative or um, kind of dismissive stereotypes about what ballet is. Sure. And what is the fundamental fact of ballet is, is that it's in the moment. Yeah. And um, you are there in a shared experience with 2,000 other people in a theater and all of the energy of every single person that is involved is kind of washing over you in this experience in real time. And um, it's un unmatchable, uh, actually. I uh, again, my my point of reference comes from watching my daughters do this, and and there's been a couple of times where, granted, this is you know, fourteen, fifteen, the older girls, sixteen, seventeen year old girls, where I'll be watching their either at the recitals or some of the numbers they're doing, and the the girls that are on point, and they start doing this classical these classical ballet moves. It, it makes me as this big tough guy super emotional because a I know who these girls are and how how hard they've been working, but also it's it's just so beautiful. The, this thing you're describing, just this classical art form that uh, fortunately by groups like the Oregon Ballet Theater and then these small independent studios that are scattered everywhere yeah. that just were continuing to do it. It's a big part of our mission to share that, to be a, a font of information and support for ballet studios all over the state, actually, mm -hmm. um, because the, the study of ballet in of itself is something that's extremely good for young people. It uh, The discipline that's required, the... Uh, the physical dexterity that's cultivated, the ability to um, organize yourself in space right. is something that is useful uh, and has been proven in you know scientific studies. I, I know that there are a lot of football players who have studied ballet yeah. over the years simply to get that um, that fine that, that you know that those uh, fine motor abilities mm -hmm. to be honed. Um, and then what is sometimes our, the challenge for us is to get people over the hump of experiencing it as a, a spectator sport. You know, um, we don't have um, online betting for ballet. And, right. you know, the, at the end of uh, a ballet performance, there isn't a winner and a loser, right. hopefully. And uh, sometimes it, I think it's hard for people to understand that the experience itself can get to that sublime level of like you what you said uh, you get a little bit emotional watching them right. you don't necessarily know why but when we do it right it's stripped of its precious qualities you know the um the precious like oh aren't we special because mm -hmm. we can do this thing that nobody else can do and we kind of make it so that it feels like you're doing it. You're not only watching it, but you are actually swept up in it and participating in the way, you know, when you are, you know, a, 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 a rabid U of O fan and, you know, they're just crushing it on the field. Right. You know, you're swept up in it and you feel like you're part of it. That's what we aim to do with our ballet performances. I, w I would assume, and not the, not as a counter to that, but in the, in the same mindset as a performer the energy that comes from the crowd 
is also helping support. It, it's it's a two way thing. It is. Are, are there times, maybe as a you know earlier in your career when you were a performer, where maybe the audience was a little less lively that you could you weren't getting that that back and forth. Does that make sense? I, it does. It does. Um, rarely, in my experience, um, are the dancers really aware of the audience until it comes time to take their bows. Right. And um, at least in my case, I had to really just dive very deep into myself uh, when I was performing and allow things to happen almost in a subconscious way, right. if that makes sense. Pretend you know, like that's not, not, those people aren't there. Knowing full well that you're playing to them and yeah. you're, you're working like any technician um, to get the most out of your endeavors, you know, knowing how to cheat your face or knowing when to take a pause or a moment to kind of let a, a gesture sink in, uh, like an actor does when they, when they give the line the right timing. You're aware of that because you're playing to this kind of void. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're trying to be as in the zone as possible so that you're not really feeling the crowd. It's not the same as, you know, I was, I was really into the tennis open, uh, the U.S. Open. Right. And, um, you know, that. Uh, the stadium now because I'm from New York it's it's huge it's, I can't believe how much bigger it is than when I used to go there yeah um, and I can only imagine that you know there's so much interaction between player and audience or, right. or spectators um, there's a little bit less of that at the ballet sure. For, for sure um, but we do feel it you know the dancers do feel when they've you know you can tell uh, for instance, if a, a performance is going along and then there's a quiet moment in the performance and maybe the music drops out a little bit, maybe there's a little bit of stillness, yeah. you can tell when you uh, you can hear a lot of coughs or rustling that you don't necessarily have them. Right. And on, conversely, there are times when you're in the theater and there's like over 2,000 people in the theater and you could hear a pin drop. Sure. That energy, especially because it's contained within the walls of the theater, yeah. it really like kind of hums and the dancers definitely feel that. Right. Um, there's there's so many questions that I have um, before I forget this question. And then we, I, I want to talk about the rest of the program for the uh, 30th anniversary. Um, I, I noticed this again as a parent with daughters that are in dance studios the lack of of men of males in dance programs what's what's it like at the professional level obviously there's not a uh, it's it's you know way different than my local studio but yeah. it, it, are we still seeing are we still obviously we still have men coming through programs does that waver every year to year or is it at the professional level or is there still a you know plenty of men coming in because we typically when we think ballet dancers we think of a bunch of female dancers and then the right. then a few a handful of, of men right um first of all i want to say that obt has an incredible group of male dancers mm -hmm. and uh like to stack up against almost any company in the world they are thrilling to watch um but it's true in our school we are seeing now um actually a um a kind of burst of interest from from younger um, male children, right? And uh, you know our boys program is is growing in strength, and we see uh, a lot of boys like in the kind of eight to twelve range. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on our um, just the cycle, there's a, a a gap 
in like the 15 to 17 year old range sure. where there's a, 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 a bit fewer. And every year, for instance, we do a, a huge summer program and that kids come from all over the country and even from outside the country to attend six weeks here in Portland. And, uh, and unfortunately, we never have enough boys in the program because one of the most important things that we do is partnering. And, you know, all the girls, just they just want to, like, have a guy. Right. Like, you know, lift them up, yeah. you know, help them turn, do all these things that are, are really fun to do. And um, it is something that we are intentionally trying to address. And there was a really great film that was just screened here last Sunday called Danseur about the, the experience for men in ballet. Mm -hmm. um, I encourage people to, to look it up, read about it. And, um, you know, there are, there are obviously a lot of stereotypes that, that guys have to fight to get into a ballet studio. Right. Um, my experience is that, and especially because I did not go through it as a kid, I didn't go to a ballet studio yeah. until I was pretty much an adult, um, that boys, when they come into a studio, are welcome with open arms. They're kind of little kings oh. a little bit because they're, they're so in demand. Yes. Um, and it can be a great experience for a, any young kid. A lot of guys start ballet because either their parents think they're hyperactive and need a good channel right. to get that energy out they have sometimes posture issues mm -hmm. or eventually you find guys that are like, you know, they, they just want to dance and they find their way into a dance studio or a ballet studio. I, lo I love that you, you described the the boys that come into those dance studio be being kinks because that, that's exactly what I experienced. The handful of boys at my local studio. I, I, I think back, I'm just like, if I had only known as, yeah. a, as a 13 year old kid, if I wanted to meet girls. It would have been to join a dance studio, exactly, and, and then probably have had better form on the football field and, uh -huh. and been a better athlete. All of that. Um, so that that's interesting, though, and I, and I, I think probably hopefully the trend, um, you know, because it made some pretty big news just recently where there was the derogatory. I don't know. Yeah. The the comment made on Good Morning America towards yeah. uh, Prince William's son, son, yeah, taking ballet, and um, it was really revealing because it was so casual and so. Um, uh, Lacking in thought yes. as to be just like, oh, everybody thinks this. Right. And, you know, maybe a lot of people do, but we shouldn't. It's, you right. know, it's it's kind of ridiculous in uh, practically 2020 that people consider um, the study of a very physical and yet aesthetically defined uh, pursuit is somehow not manly or, or you know, not good for mm -hmm. boys that want to be boys. Right. I know a lot of sweet mothers at the dance studio, and when that happened, I, I think that all of them were ready to fight. Uh -huh. um, but it did start a, a really great movement I saw on social media, which yeah. was posting a picture of their, their son that's a dancer saying, you know, men are dancers too. And so I thought it was uh, a really interesting point. The Portland 50 podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company. The legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. All right, so let's talk about um, the 30th anniversary. We've talked about OBT Roars. Right. Uh, what other programs are in place for the 30th anniversary? Well, the whole season is kind of uh, constructed so that we hit a lot of major markers in our history, mm -hmm. while at the same time keeping our focus firmly on the future. Obviously, in December, our Nutcracker is a, a, a 
a big holiday tradition here in Portland. Yeah. Christmas wouldn't be the same. The holidays wouldn't be the same without a trip to the Nutcracker. And uh, we do that every year. But I, I have to say that, you know, this will be my seventh year here in Portland. Literally every year it's gotten better. Right. And um, so we intend to continue that trend. Uh, in February, our blockbuster full-length ballet is The Sleeping Beauty, which was choreographed by my predecessor, Christopher Stoll. Sleeping Beauty is kind of considered to be the pinnacle of classical ballet and mm -hmm. also the the classical idiom with music by Tchaikovsky. Uh, obviously, the OBT Orchestra will be playing every performance. It's that kind of thing where um, if you look at it one way, you could think it's a little bit of a... Uh, maybe um, retrograde story of, you know, the sleeping princess who is powerless. But my message to everyone is that, that those women who dance those roles are as strong as Maria Sharapova. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've got incredible dedication and they work really hard to appear as delicate as you might think that they are on stage. In April, we are doing a, a performance called Beautiful Decay, which is a full evening work by our resident choreographer, Niccolo Fanti. And uh, this is a work that takes us out of the classical idiom and into more of a contemporary realm. It's an abstract work, but it's about the passing of time and the effects of time on the dancer. And mm -hmm. it includes two, um, they're both over 70, year old uh, dancers in the production and the, the the juxtaposition of these elder dancers with the youth of the company, that vitality, there's an inherent tension and it, it ends up being a commentary on somehow accepting that the decay that happens on the physical realm is accompanied by a, a growth and a um, a birth even in the, the more emotional and uh, deeper realm. And that performance is one that is kinesthetically just like fireworks and then uh, emotionally also really gripping. Mm -hmm. And we finished the year with The Americans 2.0, which is going to be a uh, another mixed rep performance at the Newmark Theater and uh, we're doing our very first full ballet by Twyla Tharp, who is uh, another American icon, a living choreographer, and a work by Agnes DeMille called Rodeo, which was a uh, landmark ballet from the 1940s. But, you know, it is like it sounds. There, are, like, It's cowboys in boots mm -hmm. and, um, you know, kind of the pastoral... Um, like Oklahoma type okay. thing. Yeah. Uh, Agnes DeMille was the original choreographer of Oklahoma okay. uh, based on this ballet. That's how she got that job. And we're also in that performance uh, going to have a creation, a world premiere by OBT's founding artistic director, James Canfield, kind of just closing that circle and making sure that everyone understands that even as we honor what has come before, we're just thinking about the future because we can only be in the here and now and projecting ourselves into the next 30 years. And uh, you're calling it that the last um, um, program is the Americans 2.0 because it was just, how long ago was the Americans? I, the I, Americans is now um, enshrined as a yearly event. Okay. And so we did our first Americans program last June mm -hmm. and um, it, to kick it off, I closed a personal circle by having a work by 
Alvin Ailey, who, as I mentioned, right. kind of gave me my start. And it was the very first work by Alvin Ailey to enter into OBT's repertory. So that was really cool. So again, and, that, and that's something that we can look as we look to the future of some regularity at the Oregon Ballet Yeah, Theater. exactly. Every year, the Americans is a, is, a, is a framework to both honor and promote and maybe a little educate mm -hmm. um, about um, uh, iconic American choreography and, you know, how it has influenced so much in our lives. Right. And uh, actual creators who are taking those legacies forward, but in the context of American choreography. I, I think that's pretty important just in terms of the the art, the type of art that comes out that, is, that I don't know if you would want to call it pure American, but... I don't think because we've, you know, we're the big melting pot of all these different influences we have as a culture. Um, I think it, you know, it is important to remind ourselves of the great art that's done here in America that obviously has these classical influences in it. But, you know, your, your point about the Oklahoma feel to, to some of the ballet, that's purely American. You're not going to get that anywhere else. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why it made such a big impact on the world when it was first choreographed. And um, I mean, nobody wants to really go back and read about the history, but you would be surprised to see how long the tentacles are of that particular work woven throughout popular culture, mm -hmm. through movies, television. You know, it's a, a reference that people recognize without knowing where it's come from. Right. And we're bringing that original starting point back to Portland for the first time. When, uh, as you went through the, the, the different uh, programs through the, through the season, um, the, you know, there's a month, maybe a two month separation between between the two as as a company. When are you are you rehearsing these? I'm assuming the rehearsals are overlapping at a certain point where you're, they are. They you're wrapping are. up one as you're starting the next. Yeah, well, we started the year with a little bit of work on James Canfield's creation, which is not going to be performed until June. Okay. Even while we were starting to put together this OBT Roars show. Yeah. Uh, as soon as we finish uh, Roars. We'll be starting work on the Twyla Tharp piece mm -hmm. just to kind of dip our toes in those waters, even while we begin to ramp up on the Nutcracker. Right. Um, the flow of our season is um, pretty much we go into heavy classical mode November through February. Sure. And then, so we kind of ramp up to that. And then from there, we go into a more contemporary, um, looser kind of movement forms and you know this is the beauty in my opinion of Oregon Ballet Theater and why we're such a good fit for Portland because we don't try to do just one thing we try to be excellent in a lot of things so I think the best contemporary dance you're going to see this year in Portland is going to be on the OBT stage mm. and I think the best classical dance you're going to see this year in Portland is on the OBT stage and um it's because we have an incredible, incredibly talented group of, of dancers and we've um, put our resources, and this is from the beginning, you mm -hmm. know, the, those, the two DNAs that were kind of grafted together right. was really what um, created this, this model. And we're just now trying to leverage both sides of the spectrum to the greatest extent possible. That actually dovetails right into what I will make my final question here because I appreciate your time, Kevin. Um, as the artistic director, and and you're walking this balancing act of highlighting the, you know, the traditional things that we think of when we think of ballet, like the Nutcracker, but also trying to find these nuggets of, of super different 
but also classically rooted. How, how do you find, where do you find that balance? Or is, uh, and obviously, as we talked about your approach to the 30th anniversary, p- trying to highlight the 30 years, but also be looking to the future. We just went through that at Kink. I'm rambling here, but we just went through that with Kink. We celebrated 50 years as a radio station, wow. which for a rock radio station is unheard of these days. Yeah. And it's like, we want to celebrate the 50 years we just had because it's been a great 50 years, but we are a forward-thinking radio station. So how do you, it's probably the same thing for you, is how do you uh, give homage to the past, but also be looking towards the future? Wow, that's it's a tough question because it is uh, fundamentally the the eternal riddle that is never really solved. Yeah. And uh, it is only put into practice by trying to emphasize one thing at a time and to find balance. I'm I'm just super excited about OBT Roars because it really does present uh, almost the entire history of the 20th century into the 21st century mm-hmm. of ballet. And um, it is an exciting show in of itself. Like, you know, that journey that we've created is going to be really exciting. And those kind of performances are really hard to calibrate, you know. Um, I can only say that our belief is that we are best when we do not allow ourselves to define ballet down to a small idea and that ballet, for all of its negative or tenuous connotations out in the popular culture, is actually a very big idea. And um, the thing that grounds us is this aesthetic ideal and the the training that is the classical ballet training, but the uses and the ways that we can employ that training are literally limitless. And so, you know, we've got choreographers who want to come work with OBT because of this mindset because they know that they'll get tra- classically trained chore- uh, classic- classically trained dancers who are able to transform themselves into wildly risk-taking contemporary dancers and then go back mm-hmm. you know and at a certain point you want to you want that beauty of of the the perfectly shaped line of the perfectly controlled balance you know that's what we add you know i i I love all kinds of dance, and I, I really do mean all kinds of dance. Uh, I find that um, there is something that nurtures me in a way unlike other kinds of dance when I go to a, a, a really well-done ballet performance. Mm-hmm. And by well-done, I mean that it's not just superficially pretty. Um, my, my watchword and anyone who's worked with me over the past 10 years will tell you that it is robust. You know, we are robust. We're not frail. We're not delicate. We are not timid. We are robust because we embrace everything that is possible through our training and our traditions, and we are bold in how we want to employ them. I think that's a great way to, to wrap up this conversation, Kevin. We could probably talk for, for hours, for, for hours. <laughs> um, but I appreciate you coming in. Best uh, best success for the 30th anniversary season. Thank uh, you. I think the correct term is break a leg. No, that no. is like literally oh. the worst thing you can Dang say. It. 
Um, <laughs> if I was still in theater, the theater the that's theater, break a leg. Yes. What is it for ballet? Uh, well, you know the the word typically used is a French word, mm-hmm. and so I think I can say it because um, the FCC doesn't mind. Right, um, not on podcasts. It's uh, merde. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Merde. Oh yeah, I like that. You know what it means? I do. Yeah, I do. So it's like People, which, we'll, we'll it's, let everybody else look yeah, it up. Look it up. Look it up. Thank you so much. A great pleasure talking to you, and I hope you'll bring your daughters to the performance. I will for sure. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, be sure to check out Kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.